Hello, this is Rick Millenthal, and welcome to Voices of Resilience, a podcast series focused on personal journeys through adversity and trauma to find resilience and hope. And today, we have Dr. Patricia Gabby, who's a clinical professor of pediatrics at The Ohio State University and is the founder and director of Moms-to-Be, which is an innovative community-based pregnancy program for low-income women established by OSU in 2010 and just celebrated their 10th anniversary. Dr. Pat, thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. Well, we're happy to celebrate the anniversary, so let's just start. Describe for us Moms-to-Be. Well, I'm glad this is a collaboration with OSU because in 2010, I wrote a grant to Ohio State asking if they would fund an innovative experimental program to go to a neighborhood, high-risk neighborhood called Wineland Park and see if we could recruit and retain and learn from Black pregnant women living in this high-risk neighborhood. So no one had done this before. Uh, gone into a high-risk, high-crime, bullets-flying neighborhood with a very high Black infant mortality rate. And that was our goal. Can we eliminate disparities? And we didn't know how to do that without talking to the women themselves and learning what is it? What is in your environment? What is in your home life? Why is this happening so often? to Black families, and that was our mission. We did not realize that we were going to change the lives of over 3,000 women. That was like a vision that was unfathomable at that time. We just hoped we could get a couple of women to come and we'd learn from them. Our goal, um, I must say it's my co-founder, Twinkle, goal is to bring this model throughout the state. And First Lady DeWine walked into one of our Moms-to-Be group sessions in Linden, which you know is a very high-risk neighborhood. And we're in churches in most of these neighborhoods. And Twinkle handed Mrs. DeWine a newborn. A mom had just come back after she delivered and brought her newborn to the Moms-to-Be group sessions, which we, we encourage them to come back as soon as they can. And Mrs. DeWine fell in love with Moms-to-Be and the baby and us. So she said, as she went throughout the state campaigning, we need to bring this model throughout Ohio. Well, our first stop about two years later is Dayton. And we have enrolled a mom remotely. Now, again, you all know the, the challenges that we're facing with being virtual when we're so used to hugging and giving high fives and smiles to the pregnant women that come to our sessions. And we usually had about 120 a week. So now we're, you know, we're doing this all through Zoom and um, trying to make those relationships positive remotely. And we're doing it 
But again, we all can't wait till we can get back in those in-person sessions. Now, you said 3,000 moms you've affected, which means thousands of children and thousands and thousands of families. Garen and I like to use the term, change the life of a child, change the world. This seems like it's really changing the world. Well, we hope so. Um, you know, we know that if we use the life course model and look at the trajectory of a newborn child through their life, that to make those that pregnancy, that birth, a healthy full-term baby, and then those first few years of life as positive and loving and supportive as possible, that we will change the life course. And so I, I, I'm a pediatrician, so it's like, where do you start in the life course model? Well, let's start with the embryo. Let's make sure that mom is healthy and has a healthy pregnancy, a full-term baby, and then let's help that baby through that first year of life have the kind of love and breastfeeding and father involved as much as we can, the whole family involved, and give them the skills to help with the development, the reading, the talking, the singing, the dancing, all the things that help that first year of life. And then, of course, we want it to be longer. I mean, I would like to keep these moms till that baby is five years old. But we set the first year as our goal because infant mortality is measured as a death of a live-born baby in the first year of life. That's interesting. So you really identified an issue in the community, an issue for families, and then thought, how can we affect it best? Where could we focus? Well, I think I learned a lot from other people about how to approach this. I was on Governor Strickland's task force to look at infant mortality. I had just come from Tennessee and Vanderbilt, and we had, you know, we're a southern state in Tennessee, and we had a lot of disparities. When I got to Tennessee to Ohio in 2008, I could not believe the high rates of infant deaths and the black infant mortality in Ohio was one of the highest in the nation. And one of the things that I, I've learned and really lived is the, that infant mortality rates are a direct reflection of your neighborhood. It's not just the mom that is telling you about, not just the baby, it's telling you what's that neighborhood environment? What is that neighborhood facing in terms of stress, in terms of, again, poverty, joblessness, bullets flying, crime, abandoned houses, no food, food deserts, they're called. So when you look at that rate, it's the tip of the iceberg, as they say. There's so many underlying factors that have resulted in that disparities. The other interesting thing to me was when I started in 2010, the Black community did not as a whole know this, this disparities 
existed. They knew individual moms that had lost babies. They knew individual families. But when you put all the numbers together and talk to them about it, and we have over the last 10 years, now we've got a whole cadre of people who want to help and are really invested in this. So you're saying in the community, there wasn't a lot of knowledge that this was an issue. It just was life. So part of it was making folks aware of the issue and what they can do about it. Absolutely right. And, you know, we went into black churches. We're in, um, well, Wineland Park, Grace Missionary Baptist Church in Linden and Southeast. We're in African-American churches. And they have really gotten behind us and supported us. And in maternal and child health world, it was well known. So we learned from the moms about how the disparities carry over to breastfeeding, for example. Fewer black moms in general were breastfeeding, and that affects infant mortality, affects maternal health. And they've been practicing from generations handed down on how to feed your baby, how to put your baby to sleep. And we know those practices now have been a little outdated. So teaching and modeling and making sure that the families have a safe place for the baby to sleep. We give out pack and plays in moms-to-be or help moms access them. Um, modeling breastfeeding, uh, having our moms breastfeed during the sessions. So all of these things have helped reduce infant mortality in our population. Here in Columbus, we've seen pretty dramatic reduction in um, the areas where we focused. And it's been more than just moms-to-be. It's our whole community coming together. So what got you inspired about this issue personally, Pat? What made this the issue that you're focusing so much resource and time on? Well, that's a great question. I, I guess it's it's just sort of been in my blood that it's an injustice. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I've always worked in public clinics. Uh, I was in public clinic in Boston and in San Francisco, in Seattle. I always took care of immigrants or uh, black women in Vanderbilt and Nashville. Uh, they all flocked to Vanderbilt. And I just love those parents. You know, they they come in. They're so... Uh, focused on having healthy babies, and they often don't have the resources that a lot of families have, but they still make it work. And it just struck me as such an injustice that they should suffer so many losses. And I, I've been fortunate that this has been my passion. So you know, everyone has their passion. It took me a while to get to just being able to focus on changing this trajectory. And I, I feel fortunate that I'm able to do this. Elaborate on that. You feel fortunate you're able to do this. Well, I'm fortunate in the sense that I, you know, I have a husband that makes a good income <laughs> and I don't have to uh, worry about my making money. I, I can focus on what's really important to me. And that, you know, that's a luxury for um, 
some people to be able to do that and not worry about their full-time job that they have to have. So my husband has been very supportive of me focusing on this. Well, you know, I totally understand that. You know, um, uh, I'm not a medical professional or a podcast professional. I'm CEO of a marketing agency called The Shipyard. And we, too, saw mental health and navigating through adversity as an issue that we cared about deeply. And we thought we were in the communications business and we could do something about it and just dove right into it. And I'm just so blessed that we're in a position really to do that. I totally understand. Both Karen and I just totally understand that. So, Dr. Pat, you're a very well-regarded pediatrician in the Columbus, Ohio area and have been in, in other areas you lived. Uh, your husband you just talked about, Dr. Steve Gabby, uh, was CEO of the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center until recently, one of the best and biggest medical centers in the country. He recently retired, and I understand that, uh, well, he's dedicated a bit to this initiative too. Is that right? That is right. And he's a pillar of moms-to-be, I have to say, a pillar. Because, um, you know, we we started with two moms and a $50,000 grant from OSU. Now we're over a $1.6 million budget. We've got 20 people on our staff, and we see 120 moms a week before COVID. So to run that and to keep this program on solid footing, I needed help. And who better than a a noted world-famous obstetrician, Dr. Stephen Gabby, who was also the CEO of the OSU Wexner Medical Center. So I, I said, Steve, you know, now that you're stepping down as CEO, I need help. And he stepped right in. He comes to our moms-to-be sessions every week with me. We see high-risk pregnant women, women with critical medical conditions. And he does the pregnancy group with our team. So he hears the moms, he advises. And I do the parenting group with my postpartum moms. And together... We have become, you know, a really strong medical team. And I think that gives our team some courage to keep on with this program. And we see a brighter future because we've got him involved advising us. What is that like? I mean, it's a whole new phase of your life working together on this, isn't it? It's wonderful for me. And I think Steve enjoys it. I know he does. He, about 20 years ago, did a, or maybe 30 years ago, he did a very important randomized controlled trial in Philadelphia with um, inner city African-American moms trying to reduce preterm births in that population by giving more medical care. So being on call 24-7, seeing the moms every week, really state-of-the-art medical care for a group of women at very high risk. Nothing changed. 
nothing changed. They still had high numbers of preterm births, high numbers of disparities. So he concluded it's not the it's not medical care that's missing, it's all the social supports that we can provide. This gave him the opportunity to go back and look at what he discovered and say, well, now maybe we, we do have um, a solution, we have a method, we have a program that can change the outcomes, just as I had hoped to do with medical care. It's really a combination. It's not just medical care. It's not just making sure they have food and transportation and a good house. It's really the combination if we're going to make progress. You know, without using names or anything, can you tell me a story of one of these moms? You know, I can. I can tell you a lot of stories. Um, One mom that comes to mind was one of our first moms. She lived in the neighborhood, and this was in Wineland Park, and she would come every day, every week to moms-to-be, and she was early in her second pregnancy and came to us with this pregnancy, and then she became homeless. They were rehabbing Wineland Park. And the home that she was in was going to be torn down. So she had no place to go. And she was pregnant. We said, how can we help you? So we were able to get her into an extended lodging for, let's say, a couple of weeks. We might have even used our own credit cards and got her into a safe place where she could stay. And then she did get Section 8 housing voucher, and she was able to find a home. And she was able to have a healthy pregnancy. She then, because we were in Wineland Park and we had a a coalition of um, charities, Chase, for example, was a big supporter then, And the Huntington Bank was making a big effort to hire people from the community. She eventually got a job with Huntington Bank. And in that position, she was able to help some of our moms-to-be staff get home mortgages so that they could buy a home. And it's like a pretty amazing story that it is. this mom, she had a lot of resilience and she'd had a lot of hard, um, made a few bad choices in her life before she started coming to moms to be. But she's a real success story now. She's a story of resilience. That was what we saw in so many of the moms, exactly, was stories of resilience. So many moms. That's a wonderful story. It's during their really most vulnerable time. They're pregnant. They have a lot of choices to make at that point. They want to give birth to their baby. And at that time, everything could be either unsafe or you can create safety and create a pathway. And for many of them, once they have that pathway, they find resilience, don't they? 
That's what we see, Rick. It, you know, it's it's pretty amazing. One day I was driving down Fifth Avenue. Um, that's my my course to Wineland Park, and there's a billboard, and it's one of our moms. And I can hear something in your voice, Doctor Pat. How does it feel when you tell those stories? Well, it is, you know, especially now when we need such an uplift. It does help me remember why we're doing this and uh, how how important it is for the person who's giving up. You know that those that can give get just as much reward as those that receive. So that's the way I feel. And I'm fortunate, again, going back to uh, why I feel this is a luxury. That was very good what you said about these times. I feel like people want to view people in the circumstances they are today with a quick moment they see where they are today. Yet if you can see people and their potential and their possibilities, we can make the world a better place and we certainly can help these lives, can we? Absolutely. Um, and that's been the focus of Moms-to-be and whether it was an innate strength of mind to recognize this in women and fathers. So saying that, you know, we pour good into moms so they can pour good into their babies. And that's what changes these lives, these babies' lives and the moms' lives and our lives. <laughs> you just said something pretty interesting. Do you think this ability to recognize the strength of another woman comes from inside you? Well, that's a good point. Um, I think, you know, we all have these innate qualities and our, our special insights. And I think that I, I, I do feel like I am able to read people pretty well and understand where they are today and where they could go in the future. Tell me a little about your childhood. Where where did you grow up? Where were you born? I grew up on a cattle ranch in eastern Oregon. Um, it was a family, multi-generation ranch um, founded by my great-grandfather who came from Genoa, Italy. And um, how he got to eastern Oregon, <laughs> sort of a godforsaken place. We, we live in an extremely rural area. And um, there's, I went to a school with about, right now it has about 40 people total from kindergarten through 12th grade. Hmm. But I, you know, I was so resilient there on the ranch. I had to uh, drive the tractor and ride the horse. <laughs> uh, and my family was always, um, hardworking and innovative and we read a lot and we loved science and so I guess it was a natural to go to medical school <laughs> and I went to Oregon Health Sciences in Portland Oregon and became a doctor we never really struggled we just worked hard we had um we had a pretty large spread and that's why we had to do a lot of work <laughs> we just loved um, it was just always assumed, even though we had hired men, that we would work alongside them. And I guess that's why there's never been a hierarchy in my thinking about people. It's just everybody's equal. So what I learned on the ranch 
definitely has helped me in my in my life in medicine. You said there's a lot of challenges. A few minutes ago, you said it was a bit of a story of resilience, too. You're saying it just was a culture of resilience in that life? There are the hardships, of course. Um, losing cattle, hard winters. And, you know, going to medical school is challenging. You have to be resilient, <laughs> especially as a woman. In those days, I think there were only three women in my medical school class. So you have to be resilient. But I can say I never felt discrimination or um, any problems with being a woman in a man's world. I heard you were a rodeo queen. Is that right? Well, princess. A rodeo princess. <laughs> That's true. Princess. Yeah, well, I may have aspired to be a queen, but I only made it to princess. So you went to undergraduate in California. And then you said you went to med school. You were one of only three women in your medical school class. Where, where was med school? Portland, Oregon. And then you got a doctorate in public health at Harvard. MPH, Master oh, of Public master's? Health. Yes. That's quite a journey from Eastern Oregon, Dr. Pat. <laughs> it's pretty impossible, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. In doing this, do you have hope? I've always had hope. I guess I, I have to say I'm feeling a little discouraged right now um, in terms of the political atmosphere here in America. I could say up until a few days ago, I have always had hope. <laughs> I'm just worried with the election coming up. I just worry about that. What worries you? Well, you know, I see parallels in... Um, this white nationalism that are extremely unhealthy. I think our listeners should know that, that it doesn't sound to me like it's a partisan thing as much to you because you just mentioned that your collaborator is Fran DeWine. That's Governor Mike DeWine's uh, uh, wife, our first lady, a Republican, always been a Republican and an active Republican. So I think what you're saying is it's this rhetoric and this leadership situation right now which creates this environment. Absolutely. And, you know, and I, I was a young Republican. <laughs> it's definitely not partisan. And frankly, I mean, I respected Republicans just as much as I respected Democrats. And it's not partisan. I, I feel badly for the Republican Party because, uh, I mean, my father was a county commissioner most of his life in a Republican Party. But we have to be truth-seeking. Yeah. Do you see it affecting this community? Do you see it affecting people in this community, their morale, their hope? Very much. Very much. You know, I testified um, a written testimony for the Ohio State Senate that has a resolution to declare racism a public health crisis. And that resolution hasn't gotten very far. But, you know, it should. It should go farther. I think there's just too much division right now to have it go farther. Well... Dr. Pat, we can't, can't affect everything, can we? So you are focused on this and making change this way, and um, I still have hope. <laughs> I have hope because there's people like you and many like you. What's your aspiration for this program over the coming years? 
My aspiration is that it will be integrated in with the um, medical delivery system and that it will be a part of every mom's life throughout Ohio. I think what we're working on right now is, and we will achieve it, is to become part of the obstetrics and gynecology delivery system. So when you walk into OSU and you're pregnant, you will become part of moms-to-be as well as the medical system. And that model we could take to Dayton, we could take to Cleveland, we could take to Cincinnati, we could take to Youngstown. It could be a model that we could take nationwide. What is your hope for these moms? Well, you know, I hope they have a full-term baby. I hope that they have a positive relationship with the father of this baby and that they have good parenting techniques and that if they want a career and they want a job, that they're able to get that and have their children in very positive child care and a learning environment so that their children grow up, graduate from high school and go to some kind of postgraduate school so that they're well prepared for the future. Dr. Pat, that was an inspirational story. I think you're changing so many lives, thousands of children's lives, and that will change thousands of lives for generations. So really appreciate you're so busy taking the time to be on Voices of Resilience and on behalf of everyone just thank you thank you thank you well it's my pleasure Dr. Patricia Gabby what a wonderful powerful force of nature for more information on moms to be visit moms to be that's numeral two letter b at osumc.edu or moms to be on Facebook. Voices of Resilience is produced by the marketing engineers of the shipyard in collaboration with the Ohio State University Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health. To hear more of our series, visit VoicesOfResiliencePodcast.com or you can hear us on Spotify, Apple, and Google Play. Thanks to our production team, Mike Long, Kate Masters, Coop Studios, Magnetic Studios, and my favorite, Karen Millenthal. Thanks for joining us.